If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisle right now. If you just get their attention by raising your hand in some way, um, they'd love to get a Bible into your hands. We like everybody to hear the Word, but we want you to follow along with your own eyes too and uh, enjoy it that way. So get their attention. Sunday mornings we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order and we come to a very, very fascinating passage of Scripture as he concludes uh, what is known as his Olivet Discourse. And so uh, chapter 25, Matthew 25, verse 31, the word of the Lord. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and it is when, it's not if, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. And all of the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He'll set the sheep on His right hand but the goats on the left. And then the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed of My Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. And then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me, and naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Verily, verily, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We think about the privilege that it is to be able to turn to it to be able to be given history in advance and to make the decisions in our life ahead of time so that we can be on the right side of your history. We thank you, Lord, for your voice and for your truth. We thank you for an alternative to the so-called wisdom of this world and man, even our own wisdom, Lord. We're thankful and happy to be in the truth. And we turn now to your word, Lord, recognizing this to be your voice and your instruction to us. And we pray that you would take it off of the printed page by your Holy Spirit and that you would speak it right into our lives in a way that you know each one of us needs to hear from you today. 
Thank you that you're a speaking God, Lord. We come to you as a hearing people today. Tell us what we need to hear from your throne today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus in this section of Scripture now closes his Olivet Discourse, a teaching that he gave and was named for the location that he gave it from, and that is the Mount of Olives. The Olivet Discourse is the second longest teaching of Jesus recorded in the Scriptures. And he gave this discourse in response to two questions that were asked of him by his disciples way back in chapter 24, verse 3, where they asked him and said, Tell us, what will, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And in this final portion of Jesus' sermon, Jesus' Jesus's answer to those questions, he reveals several things to us. Notice in verse 31, first that Jesus declares that he will come to this world again. And this great event is known as the second coming. It occurs immediately after the seven-year tribulation period, the tribulation period occurring after the rapture of the church. The tribulation period is a period in which God pours his righteous indignation and his wrath out upon the wickedness of man and upon a Christ-rejecting world. Jesus will then return from heaven to this earth and he's going to make his way to touch down on the Mount of Olives, the Bible tells us. He will make his way from heaven to the Mount of Olives by way of the Valley of Megiddo or the Jezreel Valley in order to engage in one of the most famous future battles in history and that is the Battle of Armageddon. As he comes and makes his ascension from heaven once again to the earth, makes his way to Jerusalem, to the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem, he goes by way of, of Megiddo, that valley, and there will be three great armies that will be assembled to, together there under the influence of three great demonic spirits. They come into the valley, interestingly enough, intent upon fighting one another and destroying one another. But as Jesus appears, their rebellion and their wrath against Him is so great that they turn from their hatred of one another, and they turn all of their military focus on Jesus. The battle isn't really much of a battle. It isn't some long struggle. It's over very quickly. Something comes out of Jesus' mouth. Some, something that He says. This Jesus who is able to speak all that is created into creation just by His Word. He says something and instantaneously that valley is turned into a 164 mile long graveyard. All of them are dead. And then He makes His way and touches down on the uh, Mount of, of Olives there in, in Jerusalem. He never touches the earth during the battle of, of uh, Armageddon. That privilege is reserved for the Mount of Olives as the prophetic scriptures declare. The very mountain that Jesus is giving this Olivet Discourse uh, from. 
Zechariah writes of this, and he said in Zechariah chapter 14, And in that day his feet, that is the feet of Messiah, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. It has been my privilege through the years to stand on the Mount of Olives a number of times. And there are many things that go through my mind because so much happened on the Mount of Olives biblically. But one of the things that I never fail to think of is that this mountain is awaiting the touch of a certain set of feet. And when those feet touch that mount, all of these great events will then unfold. Millions and millions and millions of pilgrims, Jewish and Gentile alike, have stood upon the Mount of Olives, and we haven't even been able to create a jiggle on them or any kind of movement at all. It waits for the feet of Jesus to touch down, and those feet are coming. From the, uh, and, and Jesus from the Mount of Olives will then make his way into the city of Jerusalem from the east, and he will make his way into Jerusalem as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. Notice in verse 31 that we, second, that Jesus further declared that the second coming, his second coming, is not going to be like his first coming, where he came quietly into the world as a baby born in Bethlehem, but that at his second coming, he's going to be accompanied by all of his holy angels. Jesus' second coming is going to be breathtaking. It's going to be stunning. It's going to be unbelievably awesome to watch uh, His return at His second coming. And this time there won't be any manger, no swaddling clothes. There won't be any crown of thorns. There won't be any scourging. There'll be no blasphemies of men, no spit placed upon Him, no nails through His hands and His feet, no crucifixion, no death, none of those things that will happen. You will have Jesus in all of His eternal glory. John, Peter, James, and John, when in the course of Jesus' three and a half years of public ministry, they went up on a mount that became named after the event that occurred there, the Mount of Transfiguration. And as James, Peter, and John are on that mountain with Jesus... We're told that Moses and Elijah appeared on the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus was transfigured into His eternal glory. I mean, it's spectacular. And Peter kind of awakens from some kind of a condition, and he sees it, and he's, he does what a lot of us do, and we're a little confused, and we don't know what to say. We begin talking. <laughs> There's the old saying, when you can't improve on silence, don't. And, and he comes in and he starts to say crazy things, but he's so overwhelmed at Jesus in his glory. He said, let us build three tabernacles here, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you. I think of Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. 
And he sees none other than Jesus in Isaiah chapter 6 in the vision of the Lord. We know that from John's Gospel. And when he sees Jesus in his eternal glory, he declares, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim, and each one had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, And so said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I think of the Apostle John, the youngest of the twelve apostles, had a tremendously close and intimate personal relationship with Jesus. Heard everything that Jesus said in the three and a half years He was with them. Heard all of the teaching. Saw all of the miracles that He saw. Heard every time Jesus sighed. Saw every time that Jesus cried. When they would sit and they would eat, it would be John who would come and have really the place of honor closest to Jesus. That's the place that he wanted, assured of Jesus' love for him and great in his own love for Jesus. And yet in the book of Revelation, when he is taken into heaven, whether physically or by vision, we don't know. But he sees this Jesus that he was so comfortable with on that kind of a level and so approachable. And he now sees Jesus in the, in the greatness of his glory. And he declares there in Revelation chapter 1, Then I turned to see the voice of him who spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes as a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of many waters. And he had on his, in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell down as dead. That's the Jesus that's coming back. At his second coming, we're told, by none other than Jesus himself, that he's going to be accompanied by all his holy angels. All of the angelic beings are going to come back with him as we will at his second coming. It's a very interesting study to do a study of angels in the Bible. My favorite study of them is to look in the book of Revelation. You have angels that are, are so large that they're able to put one foot on a continent of land in, in the world and then one foot upon the sea and, be, and have the water be equally stable for them. Angels that can stand in, 
inside upon the very heat of the sun and be completely unaffected by it. The description of the angels in the Bible is absolutely awesome. And they're all coming with him. Sometimes people say, well, God, if you're real, would you make an angel appear in my room? You better have either excellent health or a very, very good medical plan. Because if they showed up, it would be as great a test as they could ever put on your heart or on your mental sanity. They are so awesome, these beings. And they're going to come back with Jesus. And we're going to come back with Him also and and return with Him at His, His second coming. And I think our buttons are going to be busting over our pride in our Savior. That's my dad right there. What do you think about that? You know, It's going to be a wonderful experience. Notice in verse 31 that Jesus is going to sit on a throne. That is, He's going to rule on this very earth for a thousand years. It's known as the millennial reign or the thousand year reign of Christ. But a throne also speaks of judgment. And before that reign begins formally, a great judgment and a great separation is going to take place, we're told in verses 32 and 33. At the end of the great tribulation period, every person in the world, out of every nation, will be brought before Jesus as He sits on a throne in order to be judged by Him. These people are those who have survived the great tribulation period and they are still living on the earth at the time of Jesus' second coming. What is described here is not the white throne judgment that's described in Revelation chapter 21 which occurs at the end of the thousand year reign. This occurs at the beginning of the thousand year reign of Christ. The white throne judgment only involves the lost, those whose names are not written in the book of life because of their unwillingness to put their faith in Christ. The progression goes like this. The rapture of the church, a seven-year period of tribulation, Jesus' second coming, this judgment, then a thousand-year reign of Christ, the white throne judgment, and then a new heavens and a new earth, and then on into eternity. That's what the, the Bible describes as the future history of the world. Jesus, we're told here, is going to personally divide all of these folks into two groups, and two groups alone, only two groups. As each individual is brought before Jesus, he will declare whether they are to be numbered among the sheep on his right hand or they are to be numbered among the goats on his left hand. And in the ancient world, the right hand was a symbol of favor and the left hand was a symbol of of disfavor. This judgment appears to take about 45 days. In Daniel chapter 12, Daniel declares there, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up. There will be 1,290 days until Jesus' second coming. But Daniel went on further to say, or the angel to Daniel, and said, Blessed is he who waits and comes to 1,335 days. The only thing that this really matches in the whole prophetic picture is that it indicates that this 
period of judgment covers a period of 45 days. Now notice in verses 34 through 40, Jesus' dealings with the sheep at his right hand. His declaration to the sheep uh, at his right hand, he declares in verse 34, to be blessed of the Father. He invites them, verse 34, to inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the earth. He gives the reason for this blessing in, uh, where he says in verse 35, because they had fed Jesus when he was hungry. They had given him a drink when he was thirsty. When he was a stranger, they had taken him in. When he was naked, they had clothed him. When he was sick, they visited him. When he was in prison, they had visited him. And then notice in verses 37 through 39, their confusion over all of this and the question that they raise uh, to him uh, in, in all of this. They... they they, Jesus had not been physically present on the earth during the seven-year tribulation period. He just wasn't there. Jesus will have been in heaven during that entire period. So they don't understand how they could have done all these things for him when he was never present for the seven years. And Jesus' answer is given in verse 40. And he declares, Assuredly, or verily, verily, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Now, during the tribulation period, each of these people had done these acts of kindness to Jesus' brethren. And in doing these acts of kindness to Jesus' brethren, he received it as if they had personally done it for him. So they're being rewarded for their acts of kindness toward these people. Which, of course, then raises the question of who in the world are these people that Jesus refers to as my brethren. And Jesus' brethren most certainly refers to the Jews. During the Great Tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to be set on the extermination of the Jews. Hitler attempted to accomplish it in Europe. The Antichrist will attempt an extermination of the Jews worldwide. And so he will take all of his powers, which are considerable, all of the resources that, that he will have at that time, and he will make for a time the great focus of that military, the police forces, the intelligence, all those things to track down Jews and to destroy them. But many Jews will put their faith in Jesus after the abomination that causes desolation. After the Antichrist at the halfway point of the tribulation period goes into the rebuilt temple, into the Holy of Holies, he sits down, declares to the world that he is God, and then further demands that he be worshipped as God, the Jews will immediately recognize that they have been a sucker in identifying the Antichrist as the Messiah, that they've been deceived by that, and as Jesus warned them, run for your lives out of the city of Jerusalem because of the persecution that the Antichrist would mount up against them. And so all through this 
tribulate or through the tribulation period, you're going to have the 144,000 Jews that are specially protected by God who will be preaching to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. It's not this Antichrist guy. Jesus is the Messiah. The two great witnesses that witnessed for three and a half years of the tribulation period. We know one of them is Elijah. We don't know who the other one is. My guess is that it's Moses. Imagine having Moses and Elijah for three and a half years resurrected, speaking, representing the law and the prophets to the Jews for three and a half years that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Christ. And when they realize that the Antichrist has deceived them, all of this evangelism and all of this preaching of the gospel and pointing people to Christ that occurs through all of these witnesses and others, the light will go on and they will put their faith in great numbers in Jesus. And so this is what is going to happen to them during that period as they're hunted by the Antichrist, this crushing persecution that he's going to bring against them, which will include a Gentile population that will gladly align with the Antichrist in a persecution of the Jews. And further, the Jews, these believing Jews, will not take the mark of the beast, which means they can't buy, they can't sell. It will make it extraordinarily difficult for them to sustain uh, themselves. And so their survival is going to depend upon the care of Gentiles who have also come to Christ during the tribulation period. And these sheep are those Gentile Christians who in the tribulation period, those having come to know the Lord themselves during that period, they're going to have problems enough of their own. They won't be able to buy or sell because they'll refuse to take the mark also. But they will step up because of their faith in Christ. Not in order to earn salvation, but because they already know the Lord, they already love the Lord, and thus they love God's people, whether Jew or Gentile, and they will risk their lives to an even greater degree in order to assist these Jewish brethren in their condition of of great vulnerability. The prophet Joel seemed to refer to this uh, judgment Uh, and its focus on the Jews, this persecution against the Jews during the tribulation period in Joel chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Let me read it to you. He said, For behold, in those days and at that time, I will bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. When the Messiah will do that at the second coming, because they will have been scattered out of the land. And then I will also, the Lord says, gather all, all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is very near Jerusalem, and I will enter into judgment with them there. And what will the judgment be? On account of my people, based upon the treatment of the Jews. My heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have also divided up my land. All who go into the kingdom age of the thousand-year reign of Christ will be believers in Jesus. They'll be Jewish and Gentile Christians who've come to a faith in Christ during the course of the tribulation period, but have survived the great tribulation. Uh, 
It is very important related to this passage to understand that Jesus is not saying in this passage that we can earn our way to heaven by giving needy people in the community that we live in food and water and clothing. And there's a lot of people who take this passage and they try to develop a idea that salvation is the, on the basis of works and if that you're just a kind enough person and a good enough person and you help the needy around you and you visit the sick when they're in the hospitals or they're shut into their homes or you visit people in the prisons and all and you do all of these kinds of things then on the day of judgment those good works are going to weigh for you and, and you'll make your way into heaven. And so that's the attempt that many people make related to the passage but that is to ignore completely the whole context of Jesus' sermon. And further, it is to ignore the entire the teaching of the entire New Testament in the Bible. In the Gospels, Jesus declared, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would feed the hungry and give water to the thirsty, that's not what He said, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. In the book of Acts, when Peter stands before the Sanhedrin, this unbelievably intimidating religious environment, Peter stands before them and he declared, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Speaking of the name of Jesus. Paul, in writing in the epistles in the New Testament, wrote to the church at Ephesus and he declared, For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So you've got the Gospels, the book of Acts, the entirety of the New Testament epistles all united together in the great fact that salvation is a gift and it's not something that we can earn even by doing things as good and as wonderful as this. Now notice in verses 41 to 45, Jesus' declaration to those who are on his left hand. Number one in, in verse 45, he commands that they depart from his presence. I would never want to hear that from him. I would never, ever want to hear from them, that from him. Not ever and certainly not in that place. To find myself one day standing in front of him and the first words that he speaks to me is depart from my presence. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody needs to hear that. In verse 41 further he declares them cursed and that their judgment is that they be cast into everlasting fire to join the devil who will already be there at this particular point in the chain of events. This whole thing here in verse 41 where Jesus speaks of, of hell, speaks of Gehenna, the eternal lake of fire, he gives tr tremendous insight here from him related to that. This statement of Jesus reveals some things that, again, very important for us to recognize. The first thing that it teaches us is that Satan doesn't rule in hell. He's a participant there. 
So I'm not saying you can't read the far side, the old books on it, or you read cartoons all the time and stuff. There's the devil in hell, and he's got the pitchfork, and he's like bossing everybody around, and he's got like a supervisor's position. It doesn't work that way. In hell, he's a participant. He is as tormented by the flame and by the punishment as anyone else that is, is there. He and his demonic horde are participants participants in that the other thing that's interesting to note is that jesus tells us that hell was never created for man it was originally created as a place of judgment for the devil and then the angelic beings that followed him in his rebellion against god we know them as demons that's who hell the eternal lake of fire was created for those angelic beings and, 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 and for them alone. But the fact of the matter is, if people want nothing to do with God, nothing to do with heaven, nothing to do with righteousness, don't want to be in heaven, don't want God's holiness, don't want His rules, don't want any of those kind of things and choose to live a life of rebellion against God and commit the greatest act of rebellion that a person can commit against God and that is to reject His Son, then there's only one alternative to heaven and that's this place called hell, eternal lake of fire. Nobody is going to want to end up in that place in their right mind. But there are multiple choices there. There is heaven and there is hell. The wonderful thing about it is that there's no reason for anyone to join the devil and those demonic beings, which would make hell hell enough without everything else. I, I, I don't want to know any more about the devil than I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And I don't like what I know about his power and what he can do and how wicked he is and how he comes against and opposes us as Christians. Sometimes people look and say, how, how, I just don't like that God of the Bible, that Christian God. I don't know how a God of love could cast somebody into hell. He doesn't do that. Hell was created for the devil and those fallen angels. But if a person doesn't want anything to do with heaven, there's only one other destination for eternity. And each of us, by virtue of what we do with Jesus, we make our eternal destination. We determine that. And, and Jesus ultimately simply confirms our reservations. He holds us responsible for the decision that we make about where we intend upon spending eternity. You know, if I was sitting in a living room, let's say you were um, with me, I invited you over to just have dinner and a uh, you know, cup of coffee or tea afterwards. So we've enjoyed a fabulous dinner and we head into the living room and we've got this roaring fire going on in the fireplace and we sit down and, and uh, you sit in a chair and I sit in a couch and it's exactly opposite of the fire and I'm petting uh, my cat on my lap. I would never have a cat on my lap, but I mean, <laughs> it serves my purposes. You cat lovers, you'll forgive me in a moment. But if I was sitting there, and, and you were sitting there watching me, and I stood to my feet, and I walked over, and I threw the cat into the fire, you would rightly, I mean, just be shocked at that. 
But if I'm sitting there on the couch and this cat begins clawing against me, leaps from my lap and thrusts itself in the fire, you'd think, what a stupid cat. Why would it do that to itself? Because it's done it to itself. The choice that it makes. The reason for this, his decree of judgment upon the goats is given in verses 42 and 43. Because they refused to do what the sheep had done. And so they raised the same question. You know, when did we not do this? When did we not? When did we not? When did we not? And Jesus' answer is the same that he gave to the sheep, only from a, a negative standpoint in verse 45. And basically what you have here are the survivors of the great tribulation who have sympathized with the Antichrist in his persecution of the Jews, supporting his cause in the destruction of the Jews, and doubtless taking the mark of the beast. And all of it is an evidence of their hatred of God, their hatred of God's people, their rejection of Jesus, their rejection of, of God's servants and the Lord Himself. And so essentially what you're looking at here in Jesus' judgment of the goats is you're looking at a war crimes tribunal or the trial at the end of the war like happened at World War II where people that committed these atrocities against the Jews and against other people also during that period were put on trial for the atrocities that they were a part of. And then notice in verse 46, Jesus closed His teaching to the disciples and declared that the end of the age is going to end in judgment. It's going to end in Jesus' judgment. We don't often think of Jesus in His capacity as a judge. We prefer to think of Him solely in the capacity of a Savior. But if He cannot be a person's Savior, then He must become their judge. Because He cannot, as much as He loves us, ignore our sin and be God. He can't deny His nature that way. I think about the world, and it's very... It's, I'm really happy that we're in this passage this morning at Christmas time. Because the world likes to think of Jesus as that baby born, placed in that manger in Bethlehem. And He was that, and He was all that. But the world tends to think of Him as if He never ceased to be one week old in all these thousands of years. That He's in this protracted state of infancy, that He never grew, He never was crucified, he never went to heaven. He's never coming back. And they prefer to just look at him as this little baby. But he came into the world as a baby to be a Savior. But he's not just a Savior. He is also a judge. And, and he will judge where he has to be, where he is forced to judge. The fact of the matter is, that every single one of us in this room this morning, every single person in human history, every single person in this world, one day 
you and I are going to face Jesus and we are going to face him on one of two terms. We are either going to face him as our Savior or we will face him as our judge. And it's as simple as that. You look at the passage, the Bible that's in front of you. All of the Bible is inspired by God. But you look at this passage in red where Jesus comes and He warns of this judgment that is coming to the world and the necessity of being saved. And here He is giving us history in advance. He's giving you history in advance so that when, not if, so that when this event occurs, you can be on the right side of history based upon the decision that you make for Christ today. I can't make that decision for you. I wish I could make it for everyone. Everyone has to make their own decision. But everyone has a right to hear this truth from the mouth of Jesus. What you do with it, what I do with it, that's your business. But you'll be held responsible for what you do with it. And here is Jesus in the greatness of His love. His willingness to come into the world. You think about what He endured in order that we might be forgiven and be saved. It's awesome. It's humbling. The price that He paid personally for me to have a relationship with God this morning, to be forgiven of my sins, to have the hope, the confidence of heaven came into the world in order to provide us with salvation. And then couples it with this warning of the importance of making Him our Savior during our lifetime so that we never will have to face Him as judge. It's all going to happen one day. That's the future of the world. And you can't control that. That's going to happen. Heaven and earth is going to pass away, Jesus said, but my word will never pass away. His, the, the veracity, the truthfulness of His word is all tied up in this one day coming to pass. And he said it will come to pass. It is more sure than the heavens and the earth that we live in the midst of every day. Heaven and earth is going to pass away, He said, but my word shall in no wise pass away. That's the future of the world. You can't control it. But what you can control is your own personal, eternal future. What Jerusalem did with Jesus determined its future. This whole Olivet Discourse, Jesus is explaining. The whole context is even more than um, the questions that the, t the disciples asked of Him. Before they even ask the questions, as Jesus is in those final days of his life before the cross and the rejection of him as the Messiah by the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem as a whole, he pronounced a judgment with tears. He pronounced a judgment upon Jerusalem that would come upon them because of their rejection 
of Him as the promised Messiah. And that that judgment would not just be upon Jerusalem itself, but it would result in the utter destruction of the temple. And as we've seen in earlier studies, in 70 A.D., the Roman general Titus came in with the Roman legions and, in, and the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy destroyed Jerusalem and completely destroyed the temple. And what Jesus is saying here now at the end of His sermon is that what was true of Jerusalem, what was true of the temple, will one day be true of the whole world. Because the great marks of Jerusalem in that day that caused Jesus to pronounce His judgment upon it was number one, its rebellion, its open rebellion against God, and number two, its rejection of His Savior. And God says, Jesus says here that one day that same judgment is going to come on the whole earth for the same reason, because of its rebellion against God and its rejection of of His Savior. And when it comes, the judgment will be just. be utterly just. And what Jerusalem did with Jesus determined its future. What the temple did with Jesus determined its future. What the religious leaders did with Jesus determined their future. What the world does with Jesus, it determines its future. What you do with Jesus will determine your future. He is a suffering Savior. And that's what He wants to be to you. And that's all He wants to be to you. He does not want to be your judge. But He is also the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And while the world chooses to largely ignore that great fact, Heaven never loses sight of the fact that this is a great king that was born into human history. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, the very Son of God. And what must heaven think, not from the vantage point of the insanity of this fallen world, but from the perspective of the holiness of of heaven. What must heaven think of men and women who reject the Son of God? What must, if heaven is a holy place, heaven think of men and women who reject God's own dear Son? God has given men and women the freedom to reject Him, but what must God think of the person who does? I like the words of the psalmist in Psalm 2 and his counsel in this vein. He said, kiss the Son, speaking of the Messiah, kiss the Son lest He, that is God the Father, be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their faith in him. One day, what you or I think of Jesus or what the whole world thinks of Jesus isn't going to matter one bit 
Nobody's going to give even a half a second thought to it. One day in the future of every single human being, all that's going to matter is not what we think of Him, but what He thinks of us and whether He sees us as a sheep or He sees us as a goat. And Jesus gives His warning in His Word so that not one of us in this room will ever face Him as a goat, but to face Him as a sheep, as a child of God, to face Him one day with great joy and to see and to look at Him and when we first do see Him, to see Him as our Savior and that we would never, ever face Him as our judge. Well, how in the world do we make Him our Savior? What you have to do is you have to huff and puff and blow the house down. It's easier than that. So men came to Jesus and in this very question of salvation, they said, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? They had in their mind, you get into heaven by doing by doing enough good things that God will accept us. Ignores the whole sin issue altogether. Jesus answered them and He said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He, that is the Father, has sent. Salvation is found in putting my trust in Jesus, the Savior and the salvation that pleases heaven and pleases God the Father. That's how I am able one day to face Him as my Savior and not as my judge. And it doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter how much of what you've done you've done, it doesn't matter how many people know it, no one is so bad that they can't be saved and no one is so good they don't need to be saved. We all need this Savior. And so Jesus has done all of us this great work, and it's a wonderful theme related to this Christmas time. He has come into the world to provide us with salvation, and then He has provided us this warning not to ignore the salvation that He has provided. Let's stand together and we'll pray.